morning, everybody. Uh, as Dan said, my name is also Dan, I go by Danny, um, and it's just it's great to be here with you this morning. Um, it's been really good to get to know Dan, and, and uh, I got to know Jason Redberg a little bit before that. We've kind of grown as, as pastor friends, and I've really enjoyed that. It's also neat to be here and to see Dan and his element, and, and to see you guys as the church that we, we talk about often as, as we meet, and so that's a real blessing. Dan also shared that he helped us out with a church planting assessment a couple months ago, and that was really great. My, my wife and I have sensed the call from the Lord to plant a church in the, in the Milwaukee area, Wauwatosa in particular. And, and in, in doing that assessment together, Dan asked that as I come and preach that I share our, our vision a little bit with you uh, about this church plant in Wauwatosa. And I'd like to do that by telling you a little bit about a friend of mine named Tony. Uh, Tony, okay, so uh, Tony and I are very similar in, in many, many ways. Uh, he and I are, are, we're both Italian, and so our last names end in vowels. Uh, we were born uh, Catholic, and we're, we, we went through Catholic schools from kindergarten through high school. Um, we have similar personalities. We're both very driven, very passionate guys. Uh, we were in the same homeroom, actually, in high school. Uh, we played sports together. Both of us went to college in Milwaukee. I was at UW-Milwaukee, and he was at Marquette. Um, after college, we both married great girls, uh, and we each have a son. Uh, our sons are about six months old. My son's name is Louis, and his son's name is Leo. And we didn't, So we didn't plan this, that our lives would work out in this way, uh, but we are very similar in, in many ways. Um, Tony and his young family now live in Wauwatosa, Carrie and I live in Racine at the time, uh, currently. So you can see we're, we're alike in many ways, and we're alike in many ways except for one very important way. Uh, Fifteen years ago, by God's grace, I heard the gospel uh, and repented of my sin and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of my sin. I've been walking with him since then, and Tony has not. Uh, he's heard the gospel. I've shared it with him. In fact, uh, in all seriousness, tomorrow we're, we're getting lunch together, and so you can be praying for that. Um, but Tony, yeah, he, he is, he's just one example uh, of, of the kind of people that there are many of in Wauwatosa. Wauwatosa to- is full of, of people like Tony and his family. Young families, uh, great, great people doing pretty well for themselves uh, without Christ. And so... Uh, I, in our research process, I put together a little bit of a map of all the gospel-centered, Bible-preaching churches in, in and around the Milwaukee area, and I've also connected with some pastors in and around Tosa, uh, and, and the map and the pastors both agree that there is a major need for a faithful, gospel-centered church in this area. And so, uh, we've sensed God's call to do that. So, at, we've been at Grace for about six years. The elders have affirmed us in this. They've sent us for this assessment. And our timeline is a little bit over a year. So in the beginning of 2019, we'll be going to do that. And we're excited to be sent by our church. Uh, it's a good thing for Grace. And, you know, everybody's, everybody's really excited. And we want to just be here with you today to get to know you. Uh, but also just to invite you into that. Um, just that you would be praying for us, certainly, as we go. I'm going to be connecting with Dan over the next year and everything. We'll see more will develop over time. We're pretty early at this point. But at the very least, certainly want to invite you to pray and as Dan said, I want to invite you to share about this as well. Uh, we have connections everywhere, and many of you know people in Milwaukee, I'm sure. And so as we go, I'd love for you to leverage that and just consider how we might be able to, to, uh, to, to petition God to see him raise up 
a church that knows, loves, trusts, and honors him uh, by preaching the gospel. And so thanks for this opportunity to, to share that. Um, let's get to our passage this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter 2 together, um, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read that for us and then pray, and we'll get started. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 12. Peter writes this, So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Not sure if you do this, but this is God's word for us today. <laughs> All right, uh, let's pray. Let's pray and we'll jump in. God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it to shine a light in our lives and our hearts, God, to expose our sin, uh, that we might in confidence bring that to you at the foot of the cross, God, and be transformed more and more into Christ's image. We pray for a deepening passion for your word and for your redemptive purposes in this world. We pray that you'd use Peter's text here, Peter's pa- this passage in Peter, to do that this morning. We pray together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You know, every year the Grace Church staff takes... Um, a staff retreat together. We do this at the same place. Uh, we go to a retreat center in Libertyville, Illinois. Uh, and we, we take a day for silence, for solitude, Bible reading, and prayer. And it's, it's always a special day. And in the morning, we meet up very early at the church so that we can get into groups. And then we carpool down. This year, uh, I was able to drive down with uh, three of my absolute best friends in the world. Mike, Josh, and Chris. And the four of us serve together on the pastoral team at Grace, um, but we hadn't really spent much personal time, extended time like this, just for 
non-ministry reasons, just to spend time as friends. And so it was really good to be in the car and to drive down there together and, and to connect and to catch up. The night before this retreat, uh, my wife Carrie and I had a friend over to our house and we watched the original Indiana Jones. Uh, and we watched this for the first time. We had never seen that. And so when I was on this car ride down, I, had me- I mentioned that. And that kind of sprung us into this long, passionate conversation about our favorite movies and books and, and TV shows and, and all that. And so um, we talked about other 80s classics like, like E.T. and The Goonies. Uh, we lamented the fact that every movie these days that comes out seems to need to have a sequel and then get turned into a trilogy and, and all that. Uh, we, we, we sat in, in a collective awe when we considered the fact that Steven Spielberg directed Indiana Jones, Jaws, E.T., Jurassic Park, and a long list of other classic movies, each one very different from the next. But at some point in our conversation, we looked around and we noticed we had driven 30 minutes past the retreat center. Uh, We were so engrossed in this conversation uh, that apparently all four of us managed to forget where we were going and what we were doing. Uh, We were just driving and talking about our favorite stories. And clearly these stories, these movies and TV shows have made quite an impression on us. We could talk about them for hours. We almost, we almost did. Um, I'm sure you can relate to this, right? Have you ever been in your everyday life? Have you ever had like a, a famous or your, one of your favorite lines just pop in your head? Something happens and it inspires you and it just reminds you of something from one of these stories that you're just so passionate about. Just the other day, uh, my wife Carrie told me that she really loved this recipe that we tried. And um, she said, she, what she meant to say was that we should add it to our repertoire. Uh, but instead, she said, we should add it to our reservoir. And we laughed together, and in my head, I, I thought of this, this line from The Princess Bride. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? It came, to, it came right to my mind. So it may sound like a stretch, right? But at least in a superficial way, uh, these stories, for better or worse, they have shaped our lives. Most of us have at least two or three movies or books that we know line by Line. We can explain them in great detail, right? The, the cause, the effect, uh, the character development, the dilemma, the climax, the ending. We know the whole thing. All of us have been swept up into certain stories that have in some way shaped our lives. And this is true of the Christian life as well. The Christian life revolves around a story. And in this case, it's a true story. The story of God's redemptive work. The story of Scripture. And as we explore this passage today, I think we'll see that we need to let God's redemptive plan, God's redemptive story, shape the way that we live. That's our big idea for this morning. We need to let God's redemptive plan shape the way that we live. In other words, we need to immerse ourselves so deeply into the story of God in Scripture that it transforms the way we engage with the world around us. In this passage, Peter's instructing us how to live in light of our redemption. And and this morning, we're going to find four specific instructions in this passage. Four instructions from Peter. The first one is this. Number one, 
we need to crave God's word. We need to crave God's word. Peter begins chapter 2 here with a list of vices that need to be put away. Uh, He says, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And instead, like newborn infants, he says, long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now, Peter isn't making a connection between his readers and infants in order to suggest that they're somehow weak or, or baby-like or, or immature. That's not his point. His emphasis here is on the longing of an infant. The longing of an infant. We need to long for pure spiritual milk like an infant longs for his mother's milk. Uh, for those of you who've had children, I, I see we have some baby showers coming up. I know we have mothers here. Uh, those of you mothers who have nursed a child, especially should be a pretty vivid word picture for you. Um, we've all seen this infants long for milk unrelentingly, right? We have all seen this. It's about the only thing they know they need in life. I, I just remember in that nursing stage, Lewis would constantly be crying, crying, crying. It's just hysterical. And then, uh, Carrie would kind of get situated and get ready to nurse him. And the minute, the minute that that baby latched on, he's just, ah, <laughs> silence, right? And that's what Peter's talking about. We need to long for pure spiritual milk in that way. Now, scholars and commentators generally agree that this pure spiritual milk that Peter's talking about is uh, Scripture. It's the written word of God. Uh, Peter just got done talking about the living and abiding word of God at the end of chapter 1. And we need to crave God's living and abiding word like a newborn infant craves his mother's milk. And as we do this, By God's word, Peter says, we, quote, grow up into salvation. We grow up into salvation. I love that phrase. I love that phrase. Um, Carrie and I have a rule. We had a rule, I should say, that whenever our parents give us Kohl's cash, whoever's respective parent gave them the Kohl's cash, they get to decide how to use the Kohl's cash, okay? That's always been our rule until we had a son. And then we just had to buy a lot of stuff, right? And then we had to start using that Kohl's cash for other things. So we'd gotten some Kohl's cash. I can't remember whose parents gave the Kohl's cash this time. But we'd gotten some money. And so we thought, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to get Lewis some shoes. But uh, we had just actually found a pair of shoes that were fitting him pretty well. We wanted to get him some shoes, some, some Nike sneakers that would be good for him next summer when he's a little bit bigger. And so we got them intentionally a couple sizes too big until we tried them on him in Kohl's, and it was just the most adorable thing. He was just, every other step, he's just so excited about his new shoes, but he'd stumble over himself every step. It was adorable. It was awesome. Uh, It still don't fit him right now. So over these next few months, as Lewis continues to eat and sleep and play and grow, he will grow up into his new shoes. He has the shoes now. They're his but he needs to grow up into them. This is the sort of picture I think Paul's talking about, or sorry, Peter's talking about here. As we crave and immerse ourselves in God's word, we grow up into the salvation that we already have in Christ. We have it. It's ours. But it doesn't quite fit us yet. We need to crave God's word so that by it, we can grow up into the salvation that we have. Notice then, The Christian life is inherently word-centered. 
In order to grow as a Christian, we need to crave and be nourished by the Bible, by God's word. This means that we need to regularly read and reflect on God's word. We need to immerse ourselves so deeply in this story of scripture. God has embedded himself in thousands of years of human history. He's revealing himself to us through the pages of scripture written by 40 some other authors uh, in, in different styles and personalities and literary genres. It's this beautiful, dynamic book. All 66 books of this Bible are working together to reveal God's awe-inspiring plan of redemption. These days, we have unimaginable access to it. I mean, we could get it right on our phones. There's tons of resources at our disposal. We can watch videos of of great teachers online. And so, I I want to challenge you to devote the rest of your lives to the pursuit of God in His Word. You'll never exhaust his word. You'll never come to the end of this process. Immerse yourself in God's word as if your life depends on it. Because it does. It does. As we read in scripture, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If we want to live lives that are shaped by God's plan of redemption, then first, we need to crave his word. And next, number two, we need to cherish God's cornerstone. We need to cherish God's cornerstone. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is a bit of an odd question, I'll admit. Have you ever called someone dumb as a rock? I, I maybe if you're like me, maybe you've been called dumb as a rock. I don't know. But if you've heard you've heard the phrase before, I assume. This phrase, either way, this phrase dumb as a rock, it makes sense because rocks or stones are about the most lifeless objects imaginable. They, they, there's nothing particularly noticeable about them. They're just neutral colored blobs of matter, right? They don't, they don't blow in the wind. They don't smell like anything. They just kind of sit there. And so, so the idea of a living stone is really quite a paradox. And, and that's the point. That's exactly what Peter calls Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God Precious. So the picture here is that we're all, all people in and of themselves, we're all regular old, dead, lifeless stones. Jesus comes into this world as a living stone, but, but we don't honor him as a living stone, uh, as the all-powerful, all-sovereign creator God. No, instead, we execute him as a criminal. Rather than exalting him, we crucified him. And after discarding his body, after placing him in a tomb, God raised him up, the living stone that he is, and made him the cornerstone. The cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone is the most foundational stone in any building. Uh, it, it's the, sto- the, the, the weight of the structure of the building presses down most intensely on the cornerstone. If the cornerstone gives way, then the whole building will collapse. And Peter is saying here, Jesus is God's chosen and precious cornerstone. The stone that everything else is going to rest on. So apparently, God's redemptive plan involves him building something. God is building 
a structure. He's constructing a spiritual house. And some, verses, some versions translate that as a spiritual temple. So Christ is the cornerstone of this temple. And we, like living stones, similar to Jesus, are being built up into the structure of this building around and on top of the cornerstone. Peter tells us at the end of verse 5 that the point of this building, much like the, the point of the Old Testament temple, is, quote, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The building itself, made up of us, God's redeemed people, built on the cornerstone, the risen Jesus Christ, this building is a worship offering to God. Peter doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. In verse 6, he, he lays out his case for this picture that he's explaining from Scripture. For it stands in Scripture, he says. And then he, Peter launches into this beautiful collection of Old Testament passages about stones. He, he gives us sort of a mini biblical theology of stones, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, and his point here in writing all this is to distinguish between living stones and regular old lifeless stones. The difference has everything to do with our response and relationship to the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Peter says in verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe. What, what honor is he talking about? He's talking about the honor of being built into this spiritual building. That honor is for you who believe. But to those who do not believe, right? the same cornerstone has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So, there are two ways to respond to Christ, the cornerstone. We can believe, we can cherish him, and we can be transformed into spiritual stones like him built on this building, or we can reject him, stumble over him, disobey his word, and remain regular old lifeless stones. Those who disobey God's word, Peter tells us, were destined to do so. I would love to spend more time on that for the sake of our purposes this morning. I think we just need to read that and let it speak for itself. I really do. It's, it's not particularly cryptic or obscure. Peter is clearly saying that in all of this, this whole redemptive plan he's laid out, in every detail, right down to those who ultimately reject Christ and perish, God is totally sovereign. God is totally sovereign over his redemptive plan. Even those who reject the corner, cornerstone were destined to do so. So this is a bird's eye view of Peter's kind of mini theology, of uh, biblical theology of stones, his kind of flyby of this redemptive plan of God in this beautiful language from the Old Testament. And that's a bit of a summary of what he says in verses 4 to 8. And, and here's what we need to see in all of this. Zooming in a bit here. God is doing something specific in the world. He's bringing dead stones to life through faith in Christ, the cornerstone. He's building them together into a spiritual building. It's a worship offering to himself. And this building Peter's referring to is the church. It's who he's writing to. Two and four local churches, the bride of Christ. And as this happens, as this unfolds, as people repent and trust in Christ, they're gathered into churches. And as those churches multiply and, and reach the nations, God is building a people for his own possession, a holy temple and a worship offering. And here's the key. He's doing all of this through Jesus Christ, God's chosen and precious living cornerstone. This is God's redemptive plan. This is the story that needs to shape the way that we live. 
And if we want to live in this way, this is going to involve cherishing God's cornerstone. The honor is for those who believe. Peter began this section in verse 4 by saying, as you come to him, as you come to him, as we come to Jesus, we're being swept up in this story. As we come to him. So don't stop coming to Jesus. Come to him again and again each day. Cherish him as God's chosen and precious cornerstone. Next, number three, we need to celebrate God's mercy. Before I get into what I have here, I noticed that on your, I saw on the worship order, Dan, it says we gather to celebrate God's mercy. Is that every week you have that in there? Or is it? Well, not that specifically. That changes every week? It changes every week. Okay. I didn't send him my notes, so I, I mean, he's, he just must have a knack. I don't know if I shared that specifically, but anyways, I thought that was kind of cool. You guys have a great church. <laughs> All right. So again, uh, Peter just got done saying that some have rejected the cornerstone as they were destined to do. But you, Peter says in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Isn't that an incredible sentence? What a sentence. This one sentence is laced with about six biblical references. Uh, Peter is using recognizable phrases from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Exodus, Malachi, the book of Psalms. And he's doing this for a very, to make a very specific point. All of these things were once promised of Israel in the days of the Old Testament with one condition, that they obey the Lord and honor their covenant with him. This is the story of the Old Testament. As we know, that didn't happen. They, did, they didn't do that. They rebelled against God continually. They worshiped and served other gods. And Peter's point here is to say that all of these specific things that were promised by God of Israel are now true of the church, of of us, of those who are redeemed through faith in Christ. So God is redeeming those who believe in Christ. He's gathering them together as a people for his own possession. It sounds familiar, right? Israel was a chosen race. They had priests who offered sacrifices to God. They grew into a holy nation. They were meant to be a people for God's own, own possession, but Israel fell. And in the ashes of the nation of Israel, Peter is using these very same terms to describe the church. Israel built a temple for God. Israel built a temple for God, but the church is being built into a temple by God. A living spiritual temple, a much truer and far greater offering of worship to God. Through Christ, God has delivered us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And he's doing all of this for a reason. Peter says that we might proclaim his excellency. The greatest excellency of all being the mercy that God has shown us in Christ himself. Israel could only look forward in anticipation to that mercy. But now that Christ has risen, now that God has made him the cornerstone, his blood-bought people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are being built one after another into a true living and spiritual temple. Even though they, we, don't deserve it. We've done nothing to deserve it. Peter points to the fulfillment of a prophecy by Hosea in verse 10, and he says, Once you were not a people. Now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, 
But now you have received mercy. Church, we need to celebrate this mercy. We need to be about the business of proclaiming the excellencies of God. That word proclaim isn't just about shouting or saying something loudly. It has also to do with the spiritual and the emotional tone, rather, of what we're saying. To proclaim something is to celebrate it. To proclaim something is to rejoice in the message that you're declaring. Nobody proclaims the iTunes terms and agreements, right? Terms and conditions. Nobody proclaims that. It's just a bunch of, there's nothing to be excited about there. It's just a bunch of legal jargon. Uh, We proclaim the things that are worth celebrating. And as God's people, more than anything, we need to celebrate the mercy that he's shown us in Christ. We were in darkness. He brought us into light. We were not a people. He's making us a people. We were in need of mercy. He showed us mercy. And our job in turn is to declare his excellencies. To celebrate him and his mercy. So do you actively, actively celebrate God and his mercy in this way? Um, Is your life sort of built around this kind of rejoicing in the truths of God revealed to you in his word? Or has your Christian life become one of more of a duty and and obligation? If so, if if that is you, then let Peter's words uplift you today. Uh, Revel with Peter in this remarkable true story of God's mercy. Through Christ, God has transformed us. He's building us together as a spiritual temple so that we might proclaim his excellencies. We need to celebrate God's mercy. And finally, number four, we need to cultivate godliness and self-denial. We need to cultivate godliness and self-denial. So in these next two verses, 11 and 12, Peter's tone becomes very pressing and and weighty. He says, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this story that we keep talking about, this story that Peter is sort of uh, unfolding through this imagery of stones and a temple, this story Uh, This redemptive story doesn't make us one with the rest of the world, at least not yet. Uh, Instead, for now, it makes us sojourners and exiles in the world. Now, it's not that we've turned up our nose at the world. It's not that we just have resorted to just scoffing at all the the wicked heathens and sinners and, oh, how foolish. That's not the picture. And in fact, as Christians, we should be able to empathize in many ways, with the world. And here's why. Because the fleshly nature that this world operates by is still very much waging war within us. The fleshly nature that this world lives by is still waging war within us. We are no longer swimming with the current of this world. We're no longer swept up in the passions of our flesh. We're now swimming against the current, sort of as, so, as sojourners and exiles, but we're still in the water. We're still in the water. We used to just embrace these passions. We used to just be going right along with the stream. 
But here, Peter calls us to actively abstain from these passions of the flesh, to swim the other way. This means that the Christian life is one of self-denial. The Christian life is one of self-denial. It's far easier to indulge in the passions of our flesh. That comes quite naturally to us. But here, Peter's imploring us, Beloved, I urge you, don't just go with that raging current that the world is living by. Don't go that way. Swim the other way. Don't give in to the passions of your flesh. Don't live as though you're at home here in this fallen world. You're exiles. Live as sojourners and exiles. Deny yourself and live honorable lives among the Gentiles. God has sent us into this world to live side by side with lost people. As sojourners and exiles. And this tension between those two things is is very much by design. Uh, As we live in light of our redemption here in this fallen world, the world isn't going to know quite what to do with us. They're not. And I love this tension here. Uh, Peter tells us to live honorable lives so that when they speak against us as evildoers, notice he says when, not if, but, but when, when they speak against us, they may see our good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. It's an incredible tension. So are they speaking evil against us or are they glorifying God because of us? That, that's the idea. Our relationship with this world is complicated, to say the least. It's complicated. Uh, we're called to live these countercultural lives against the current of this world, waging war against our very own flesh. And, and as we do, the world is going to speak against us as evildoers. Now that all sounds very grim. That sounds very grim. And yet, at the very same time, as we live in this way, as, as, as people enter into this tension with us, they'll actually see and be compelled to glorify God. They'll be compelled to glorify God. They'll hate us because we don't play by their rules. And yet, as they observe us, they won't be able to deny these Christians have something really good going on here. I don't know what it is. I don't think I'd like it. <laughs> But it's, it's really good. What is that? In, in some ways, as Christians, we're kind of like water. The culture is like oil. But as these two mix together, uh, as they come together, God makes his glory known. As we abstain from the passions of the flesh, the world's going to look at us and say, why would you do that? What would make you do that? I live by those passions that you're denying. Why would you do that? And that's, that's exactly where our lives are meant to lead them. Because the answer to that question is the glory of God. And I want us to see something here. As Christians, we, we aren't meant to fight against the world that we live in. At least that's not Peter's angle here. We're sent into the world as exiles and sojourners to proclaim the excellencies of our God. The real fight happens within us. As our flesh wages war against our soul. This is where the Christian life is fought. This is where sanctification happens in our lives. Not, not out, out there in the world, but in, but in here, in the inner life of the Christian. So how are you doing with that war? How are you doing with the war that's raging on within you there? Are you letting God's redemptive plan 
bubble up into, into worship that fuels godliness and self-denial? Or are you indulging in the passions of your flesh and living as though you're right at home here in a fallen world? Church, we need to fight that inner fight. We need to be killing sin. We need to be turning from the passions of our flesh, not feeding them, turning them and doing that all in the name of proclaiming the excellencies of our God that others might see and know his glory. The other thing I want us to notice is that the right motivation for holy living is not our glory, but God's glory. The right motivation is not our glory, but God's glory. Uh, We are to live holy lives as exiles so that even though the world's going to be inclined to hate us, instead they're going to see our lives and glorify God. Not us, but God. Now, I'm fairly confident most of us, I'm sure, are trying our hardest to live holy lives. And that's great. It is. But let me ask, what's your motivation for that? What is motivating you to holy living? This is critical. A concern for our own personal reputation is not nearly enough motivation to live the godly life of self-denial that Peter is talking about. If if we're after our own glory, the last thing we're going to do is deny ourselves. If our goal is our glory, that's the last thing we'll do. God's glory is the only proper motivation. We need to marvel at the redemptive work of God in Christ, just like Peter does here. God is redeeming sinners through faith. He's building us together as a church of people for his own possession. He's doing it so that we might proclaim his excellencies in the world. And in turn, he gets all the glory. He gets all the glory. That's the plan. This is the story that needs to shape the way we live. And no other motivation will do. This is the only motivation that will really fuel godliness and self-denial in your life. It's a longing and a passion for God's redemptive work. So are you motivated to live a godly life for the sake of God's glory? Are you motivated to that for the sake of God's glory? Or have you settled for a lesser, more self-serving motivation for godly living? On the surface, that might look the same for a while. But that motivation will, will actually play out very differently in our lives over the course of our sanctification. We need to be cultivating godliness and self-denial in our lives. We need to let God's glory be our motivation for doing it. Everyone is captivated by a good story. Uh, they have a way of gripping us, right, and shaping our lives the way that we live. But as Christians, we're not only captivated by a story, we're swept up in the greatest story of all time, the greatest story there ever was, ever will be, and it is unfolding even today. It's a true story. It's the story of God's redemption. The story and all of its powerful implications are revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, and so we need to crave God's word. From cover to cover, this word works together to proclaim the risen Christ as God's chosen and precious cornerstone. And so we need to cherish Christ 
God's cornerstone. Through Christ, God has shown us great mercy. He has made us a people when we were not a people. So we need to celebrate God and his great mercy. God, finally, is making his glory known to others through us, through our lives. And so we need to cultivate godliness and self-denial. So church, let's let these words, let's let Peter's words sink into our hearts this morning. And as, as he suggests, let's let God's redemptive plan, the story of God's redemption in Scripture, shape the way that we live. Let's pray together, even now. God, we thank you for this chance to look at your word together, and we want to even just celebrate the way that your word points us to your word. And how incredibly you have revealed yourself. You've, you've spoken into this world through scripture, God. And we pray uh, that we would have the, the, the courage and the strength and the faith, God. To shape our lives more and more into the image of Christ. As we live lives that are built on the cornerstone. We love you, God. We thank you for your provision of Christ. And we pray in his name, that you shape us, you shape our lives by the power of your spirit today. In Christ's name, amen.